You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Well, Christ said that he came to give us what? Life and to give it how? More abundantly. And so tonight we're going to be discussing how to live a great life. In other words, what you will learn tonight is actually what everyone in the world is searching for. I don't know of anyone who doesn't want to live the good life. And there's a whole lot of people searching for the good life. Most of them are searching for it in ways that will not bring them the good life. It might bring them transient happiness and transient dopamine surges, but it's not bringing them real joy and peace and fulfillment in life. And one of the greatest inhibitors of us experiencing the great life is actually a mental illness that we all have. Now, I'm not talking about depression and anxiety. Uh, Those are much more common than they were uh, even a decade ago. In fact, studies show that they've more than doubled in this country, both of those, uh, since just 10 years ago. Uh, Mental illness is skyrocketing significantly, but this is a mental illness that each of us, including the speaker, has had. And it is very important for us to know how to deal with this mental illness and even eradicate it. And I first began to understand a little more importance of this mental illness many years ago. I'm dating myself now. I was a physician. I was through with my specialty training. I was actually in practice and a brochure crossed my desk advertising to physicians a conference, and of course we get a lot of different conferences that we can go to, but this one I decided I was going to go to even though I had had my first son and he was just two months of age at the time. This was the conference, the first international conference on the elimination of coronary artery disease. And I thought, are these quacks eliminating coronary artery disease? So I wanted to see who was speaking. No, these were people from Ivy League schools, University of California, San Francisco, from Cornell, from Cleveland Clinic, uh, and from uh, the Bogalusa Heart Study and so many other great speakers. And I thought, this is pretty bold. They're not talking about just preventing heart disease. They're talking about eliminating it. And at that time, I was spending a lot of time in the hospital, and the number one reason for admission to the hospital in the United States in 1991, anyone want to guess what it was? What do you think the number one cause of death was in 1991? It was heart disease. And I thought, I need to go to this conference. And so I went there. I actually had had a a new video camera and I was in the front row and I was filming the slides and I was so thrilled with the information I was learning because I knew that this was not just a fringe group. These were people that were top scientists that had a megaphone 
that could actually change the world. And I realized their information was accurate. It was true. We could eliminate this disease. And I thought, how different my life is going to be 25 years later when I'm taking someone to the emergency room, a a, a resident or a student, and I'm showing them a patient that's having a heart attack and I'm explaining to them that this is what we used to see every day in emergency rooms and I haven't seen a case for 20 years. And now you're seeing what I used to see on a regular basis. That's what I was imagining was going to happen. Well, guess what? It's been 31 years, I think. Is that right? 31 years since 1991. And what do you think the number one cause of death is in America? It's not COVID. It's still heart disease. COVID did kill a lot. There were a number of Uh, deaths, of course, related to the fact they had atherosclerosis and they got COVID or they got the vaccine because both of those cause inflammation. And if you have coronary artery disease, you can actually rupture a plaque and you can have a stroke and a heart attack within just a few days. But yet coronary artery disease without COVID was still the number one cause of death during COVID. And by the way, which disease is actually more preventable? Heart disease by far, but yet we focused in on disease that was so contagious, even if you triple masked, you could still end up getting it. But yet we ignored a disease that was killing more people that was far more preventable. So why has the world not changed that much? It wasn't due to lack of good scientific information. Some might think, well, they weren't giving very good information back then. No, we now know that their research and evidence is even clearer that what they were saying was right. And it is is a disease that we can eliminate. But it's actually due to a mental illness that is prevalent in almost every person in the world. And that mental illness was never discussed at that conference. What is the mental illness? Lack of self-control. So when a person is dying of heart disease that knew what they should have been eating to prevent or eliminate it, the problem is not their heart. The problem was up here in their mind. Self-control is our ability to keep ourselves from acting on our behavioral or emotional impulses. And the most quoted researcher in all the world tells us that self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. In fact, Dr. Baumeister, who's now the most quoted researcher from Stanford, says it is the number one problem in all of the world. By the way, you can't go through the halls of Congress and hear about this number one problem. You can't go to the White House and hear about this number one problem. You can't go to the Supreme Court and hear about this number one problem. 
You can't even go to the Michigan Capitol or the Michigan legislature. They'll talk about problems in those places, but they'll talk about problems that are of less importance than this problem, which is the elephant in the room, the elephant in the country, and you have to come to the Michigan camp meeting to hear about the number one problem in all the world. Lack of self-control is the number one cause of heart disease. Diabetes, yes, genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. Now that we know the lifestyle that can prevent diabetes, no matter what your genes, you would think diabetes is going down in this country. But what do the studies show? It's going up. What's the problem? Lack of self-control. Sexually transmitted diseases. I remember back in the 90s when some liberal um, academics came together and did a very weak study, but they presented it well in the legislature, and they made the point that if we make pornography readily available and, and condoms readily available, we will eliminate sexually transmitted diseases and rape from the United States of America. By the way, they did those two things, but what happened to sexually transmitted diseases? It went up. What do you think has happened to rape? it's gone up considerably. Stroke, 80% of strokes can be prevented if we would put into action what we know to prevent them. Alcoholism, is that going up or down? That's going up considerably. And by definition, it's lack of self-control. Alcoholism, murder rates, they've gone up more in the last year than they ever have been recorded in United States history. That problem, primary issue, is lack of self-control, lack of anger management, lack of being able to manage your emotions. Once we know the principles of mentally healthful living, which the people that come to our program for depression and anxiety learn, and their depression will go away as they put this into practice, if they start to suffer from it again, what is going to be the problem? lack of self-control. Harvard says 80% of cancers, by the way, cancer even superseded COVID as the cause of death during the pandemic. 80% of cancers are prevented, according to Harvard, if we would just put into practice what we know. But yet, cancer is the, actually now the number one cause of death in those under the age of 85. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in all ages, but cancer number one under the age of 85, largely a preventable death. Unwanted pregnancies. Obviously, this is a major issue when even riots and things like this can come forward when the result of unwanted pregnancies uh, can't be terminated uh, prematurely, according to some states threatening in regards to laws. But Although there's lots of talk about those types of things, no one is talking about the underlying issue of unwanted pregnancies. <laughs> and what is that number one issue? It's lack of self-control. Adultery and divorce, often due to lack of self-control on behalf of one or both partners. Underachievement. The number one reason college presidents lose sleep today is actually the underachievement of their high IQ students that they accepted. 
When those high IQ students can't make good grades, what's the problem? It's lack of self-control. Financial failure. Lack of self-control is front and center. Relationship problems will all, uh, almost always have an element of lack of self-control. And then the most rapidly rising addiction, and now the number one addiction in all of the United States of America, actually superseding... Does anyone know what substance is the most common addictive substance in America? It's actually, it, it supersedes sugar. Caffeine. caffeine, that's right, it's caffeine. But this one supersedes caffeine. It's technology addiction. And technology addiction, by definition, is lack of self-control. We know it's hurting us, but we can't seem to stay away from it. <laughs> and we continue to go back to it. So this is just a partial list, but if we start adding up all of the issues, if we actually did a more comprehensive list than this, you can see that this is a far greater problem than immigration problems. It's a far greater problem than anything that the politicians are centering in on. And, you know, amazingly, the current presidents never mentioned this problem, and the past president never mentioned this problem. But the Bible does mention this problem. Romans says, I don't really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I what? I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. There's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. And then maybe one of the most saddest texts in all of the Bible is the next verse where he says, Oh, what a miserable and wretched person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? That term wretched is mentioned in the most famous Christian hymn. What's that hymn? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. But it's only mentioned one other place in Scripture. Does anyone know where that word is mentioned in Scripture? Something we're going to center in on a little bit this weekend because it's clear where we're at in this time of earth's history, and this is the message to the last church. It comes from the book of Revelation, and I was actually at this church, the very Laodicean church, a few months ago. Weimar University went there, uh, led by their uh, Bible uh, religion history scholar, and it was a very moving experience to walk into this church, and the, the message is actually still posted there on the wall. The message of Jesus Christ to the Laodicean church. It was a church that was in a city that loved sports. They had the largest sporting arenas, and they had the largest drama arenas. So Hollywood and sports were central, 
and lack of self-control was the number one problem in Laodicea. And his message was, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and what else? If you're naked, what is it that you don't have? You don't have the robe of Christ's righteousness. So this tells us that this, can, this condition can have eternal consequences. So tonight, we're going to go through the secret to avoiding this wretchedness. First, we'll look at what secular science has showed us is the secret. Secular science tells us the secret to this problem, and by the way, they've been studying it greatly. You know, you would think the politicians would start mentioning it because the scientists are mentioning it, and the number one quoted scientist in the world, Dr. Baumeister, is research on this. It's on willpower, but they're a little behind the times. But the word that they say is the secret is temperance. Now, I'm all for the word temperance. It's moderation in things that are healthy and abstinence in the things that are unhealthy. And by the way, Weimar is very much for temperance. Weimar has trademarked the term New Start. Yes. What does the N stand for? Nutrition. What does the E stand for? Exercise. The W. Water. The S. Sunlight. And what is the first T? There it is, temperance. It's one of those eight important remedies for the abundant life. And to finish it out, we have air and rest and trust in God. But strict temperance, the researchers tell us, requires comprehensive self-control. Now, everybody actually has selective self-control. They'll have selective self-control in certain areas, and so this is why it can sometimes be confusing, because some people are very much honored and uplifted due to their selective, narrow self-control. The individual I give an example to as I go around the world and speak is the most famous governor of the state I come from, Arnold Schwarzenegger. How did he become famous? Does it require meticulous, selective self-control to build muscles like he built them? (laughs) Oh, yes. You've got to be in the gym when you don't want to be in the gym. You've got to be eating food that you don't want to necessarily eat. You've got to be taking the right supplements. You've got to be going through pain. Without pain, there's no gain in building muscles like that. And you've got to spend a large portion of every day working on this aspect. And so he was honored, Mr. Universe, for his great selective self-control. Why is it that we know he didn't have comprehensive self-control? Because when his maid was cleaning his house, he lacked it. And he lost the love of his life due to not having comprehensive self-control. And he did not want to lose her. He said, please, I love you. Don't leave me. And she says, how long ago did this happen? I never knew about it. 
you have betrayed me. I can't trust you. And he was crushed to lose the love of his life due to not having comprehensive self-control. It was actually far more important to have self-control in that area than it was to become Mr. Universe. And he would have actually traded Mr. Universe and all of his fame to be able to keep his wife. Dr. Peterson from University of Michigan is one of the researchers in this area. Dr. Selegman from University of Pennsylvania, they got together and wrote a book, actually, that has an entire chapter, six different, I shouldn't say a section on temperance, but six different aspects of temperance. And they mention, in our endeavor to measure this class of strengths, we have found that among people in the mainstream developed world, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. Yet, the strengths of temperance are very important and they have a rich array of positive consequences for the what? The psychological good life. This is why we're saying this is part of living the great life. Everyone is after the good life and even the secular scientists tell us that if we have temperance, it's going to open the door to a great life. How do they know that, by the way? because they've been studying it. And in order to study something, you first have to measure it. This is why in every college and university, there's math classes. <laughs> and uh, you know, people come to Weimar and why do I have to take math? Well, <clears throat> the, the language of today is research. And if you wanna research something, you've gotta put numbers to it. <laughs> And you've got to do statistical analysis and all of those sorts of things. And so they've been studying self-control. And they have this self-control instrument that they've developed, these secular scientists. And I'll give you a little snippet of it. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. If you state that that's very true for you, would you be ranked as high self-control in that area or low self-control? Low. How about this? I blurt out whatever is on my mind. Low self-control, I have a hard time breaking bad habits. Low self-control, I do certain things that are bad for me if they are fun. Low self-control, I get carried away by my feelings. Low, by the way, for those that were listening very carefully, what cognitive distortion is that? Last night I mentioned it. Emotional reasoning. Yeah. By the way, I didn't sing one of the songs that's helpful for emotional reasoning last night, so I'll do it right now. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. Trust alone on the word of God, it's something worth believing. Cause feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. Trust alone on the word of God, it's something worth believing. By the way, one of our founders of our country, who also had some issues with self-control, did state something pretty profound. He says, don't bite at the bait of pleasure until you are sure there is no hook beneath. That's the solution to emotional reasoning. By the way, that was Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the Democratic Party. I do many things on the spur of the moment. Is that low or high self-control? Low self-control. I spend too much money. Low self-control, I keep everything neat. High self-control, I don't keep secrets very well. 
low self-control, I often interrupt people. Low self-control, I'm always on time. High self-control, I have trouble saying no. That's low self-control, I'm not easily discouraged. High self-control, I eat healthy foods. High self-control. Pleasure and fun sometimes keep me from getting work done. Low self-control, I have trouble concentrating. Low self-control, sometimes I can't stop myself from doing something even if I know it's wrong. Low self-control, I'm able to work effectively towards towards long-term goals. High self-control. So that's a snippet, that's not the entire test, but you get an idea of what the secular scientists are measuring when it comes to self-control. And then they look at the data from all of these people that are taking the tests and they follow them over time and they find out that people with high self-control have better personality adjustment, they have higher self-worth, they're better at controlling anger, they have fewer symptoms of obsessive compulsive patterns, depression, anxiety, hostile anger, phobias, paranoia, and psychotic tendencies. In addition, they accept themselves as valuable, worthy individuals and are relatively able to sustain this favorable view of self across time and circumstances. But this occurs without registering inflated or narcissistic views of self. That's called self-esteem. We want self-worth, that's a sign of good mental health, but we don't want self-esteem where you esteem yourself more valuable than others. That's actually will lead to mental health issues. People with high self-control are more conscientious. They're more emotionally stable. They make better relationship partners. They get along better with other people. They're more accommodating. They report more satisfying relationships and they have better adjustment in their relationships. In addition, people with high self-control have better family cohesiveness, less interpersonal conflict, better perspective and better empathy. They don't wallow in their own personal reactions to other people's problems. They have more secure interpersonal attachments. They manage money well, they spend less, and they save more. You can see how much this is connected to the good life. And it starts out with comprehensive self-control. It's so important that I've told my students at Weimar University, before you think of seriously dating someone, you need to see what their self-control test scores are like. (laughs) And you need to take that test yourself and show your results to the person you're thinking of exclusively dating. By the way, after I said that, our essay president, was thinking of seriously dating a very nice girl on campus and he took the test and she took the test and they both scored very high and they're in a great relationship right now. (laughs) But uh, if you don't score high on that test, you're not even ready to begin a dating relationship. But Although we're speaking of comprehensive self-control, back to Dr. Peterson and Seligman. This is a secular psychologist. In the course of daily life, in spite of their best efforts at self-control, people inevitably do what? It's kind of interesting, the terms they utilize. These are secular psychologists. People inevitably sin and transgress, at least on what? Rare occasion. Do you think we could generally agree with that statement? I think so. 
Now notice what happens when this occurs. People with high self-control score relatively low in shame when that happens and high in shame-free guilt. Individuals with high self-control are inclined to take responsibility for their transgressions rather than externalizing the blame or minimizing the importance of the transgression. In short, having done wrong, high self-control people are inclined to focus on the effects of their behavior and in so doing are inclined to do what? Make amends. In contrast, low self-control individuals are more apt to experience painful feelings of shame and emotion that often provokes the two Ds. What are the two Ds? Defensiveness. Defensiveness. In other words, they'll say, no, I didn't really do anything wrong. It's, you know, what I'm doing is okay. Uh, and they'll also go into denial or they'll act like it didn't really happen at all but they won't go for the two R's. When they're going for the two D's, you don't get the two R's. And that is repair and redemption. Where high self-control people, when they mess up, they will actually become better as a result of going into repair and redemption. My father used to explain this to me growing up. He said, there's two types of people you'll meet. Those with 20 years experience and those with one year's experience 20 times over. And so this is the method, actually, even though we might mess up, that we can become better individuals over time. Well, the researchers have also been looking at drawbacks of self-control, and they can't find any drawbacks. They said there's no studies anywhere demonstrating any undesirable consequences of high self-control, and they've looked for it. They've tested for curvy linearity to see if excessive self-control might produce negative consequences, but no negative patterns were found. And their theory was that they would actually find some. They said, although in our society there may exist a stereotype of an overcontrolled person, one who's overly restrained, cautious, uptight, and not spontaneous, we see no evidence that self-control is to be blamed. In other words, if you have those problems, it's due to other problems, not to too much self-control. By the way, that makes temperance different than nutrition and exercise. You can get too much exercise, you can even get too much water, you can get too much nutrition, but you cannot get too much temperance. In fact, both of the T's are that way. You also can't trust God too much. So after they build up this tremendous benefits of self-control, here's what the secular scientists say. Relatively little is known about how self-control is acquired and strengthened. This topic must be regarded as a high priority for further research, especially a view of the many benefits that self-control confers. They do state, although most acts of self-control involve overcoming some incipient response to the immediate situation in order to pursue some greater long-term benefit, the ability to transcend the immediate situation is crucial for those that have high self-control. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness will facilitate self-regulation. Well, you can't have future-mindedness unless you're enhancing the frontal lobe, but out of all people that should have an advantage in self-control, by the way, what, when we, if we were to boil down future-mindedness in a positive sense to one word, what word would that be? Hope. And 
we have the blessed hope. And so, according to the secular psychologist, that should give us a great benefit in regards to facilitating self-regulation, another way of saying self-control. Dr. Baumeister has researched his area in self-control by bright lines. He says people need bright lines. These really help with self-control. Zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. And then he says this, and by the way, before I get to what he says, let me just give you a background. Stanford, they have a major problem at that university, as has been developing more and more in universities throughout the land. What do you think Stanford's, one of their major problems is? Alcohol is a major problem, but this one is even more prominent than alcohol. It's cheating. Yeah, someone in the front said it. And cheating, you know, when you haven't been studying and you haven't been utilizing self-control, and it's time for the test, and you're at a place like Stanford, there's a strong tendency to cheat, and he was teaching three psychology classes, sophomore psychology classes, and he's known to be a hard teacher. And he told them, this is gonna be a hard test. This, you better study. And so, but as he administered this test, he also was doing a study himself. And the first group, he had them read the Stanford School Honor Code. And that school honor code talks about no cheating to uphold the standards of Stanford. They took the test. And he designed the test in such a way, if you want to read how he designed it, he designed it in such a way where he could immediately tell if there was cheating going on. Do you think there was cheating after reading the school's honor code? Widespread cheating. So he thought, well, maybe if we give them positive thoughts, it will help them not to cheat. So the next group, he, gave, he had them recite their 10 most favorite books. They were even smiling as they were reciting their 10 most favorite books. And then they took the test. Do you think it helped? Widespread cheating. The third group, he decided to do something different. He got out Bibles, and he had them read the Ten Commandments. And he had them put their hand on the Bible, raising their right hand as they were reading the Ten Commandments. Not one person cheated after that. At Stanford. So here's what he says. If you believe that the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes what? An especially bright line. And he writes about this in that great book, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength. Uh, willpower. The Old Testament also speaks about this issue. It says, he that is slow to anger is better than what? The mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Ellen White comments on that text in the book, My Life Today. And she says, he has conquered self, the strongest foe man has to meet. The highest evidence of a nobility in a Christian is self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a what? A storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. 
By the way, who is the strongest foe you will ever have to meet? It's yourself. She goes on, He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed, and these will cease to cast a what? A gloom over his spirit. So in other words, people without self-control, when they run across these things, they're going to get really ticked off, and they're going to get gloomy. But those with self, high self-control, those annoyances don't seem to cause them any problems. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. By the way, let's break down that statement a little bit because I've known of people, many people, who think God failed them because they prayed that he would do psychic surgery on them so that they would never sin again. And after that prayer, they found themselves sinning. Why does God not answer that prayer? God does not answer that prayer because he believes in love. And love has to come with freedom. Freedom is a voluntary act. He is never going to take away your freedom of choice. Even in eternity, you will always be free. But notice that statement, if we can put it back up on the screen. The man or woman who preserves the what? Balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion. In other words, when we don't allow our limbic system, our lower brain, our lower human nature to take over, but we allow even though that is dinging for us to do something according to human nature, we keep our mind balanced and we go with our frontal lobe. She says, God and heavenly angels regard that individual as greater than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. So assistance in self-control. <clears throat> Bright lines help. This is one of the reasons why even in our secular, I mean, <clears throat> among our secular people that come through depression and anxiety recovery before we're through, we actually go through the Ten Commandments and the principles behind them. We want them to have bright lines that are going to help them in regards to their abundant life and future success. Worthy goals are definitely very important. Enhancing the frontal lobe. This would be through appropriate music that's healthy music. Slowing down the limbic system in overdrive, that means getting rid of Hollywood movies and entertainment YouTube and, and uh, those sorts of things. And although all of these are important for strengthening our frontal lobe, I'm now going to give you the fail-safe solution to comprehensive self-control. Christ talked about it in a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking, what? Goodly pearls. By the way, why was the merchant man seeking goodly pearls? He was looking for the good life. <laughs> and this is what everyone's searching for, is the good life. Christ doesn't criticize people that are looking for the good life. 
But he goes on. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold what? All that he had and bought it. And I'm sure his neighbors were thinking, what is wrong with him? He's getting rid of this. He's getting rid of that. He's selling this. He's selling that. And he's putting it all towards one pearl? In the parable, the pearl is not represented as a gift. The merchantman bought it at the price of what? All that he had. Ellen White in the book Christ Object Lesson says many question the meaning of this since Christ is represented in the Scriptures as a gift. He is a gift, but only to those who give themselves soul, body, and spirit to Him, how? Without reserve. We are to give ourselves to Christ to live a life of willing obedience to all His requirements. All that we are, all the talents and capabilities we possess are the Lord's to be consecrated to His service. When we thus give ourselves wholly to Him, Christ, with all the treasures of heaven, gives Himself to us. We obtain the pearl of great price. That means we obtain the good life that will come as a result of that. But we have to give ourselves without reserve to Him. So if you're having a problem with self-control in your life, you have a problem of selfishness in a corner of your life. You haven't put all on the altar of sacrifice. So the key to self-control is actually self-sacrifice. And it's self-sacrificing love. That love comes from above. Notice this, back to that book, My Life Today, God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. It's called self-control, but it actually, that power is not obtained by self. <laughs> that power comes from outside of us. And it's God's abounding love and presence in the heart. And that abounding love and presence in the heart cannot be abounding if we're not putting our all on the altar of sacrifice for Him. Christ said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have what? Love, love one to another. That abounding love will not only give you self-control, but if we must be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must do what? Practice self-control, but that means we must show what? Unselfishness at all times and in all places. So true transformative healing is dependent upon obtaining this pearl. The treasury of jewels of truth is open to all. Everyone can obtain this pearl of great price. Love can change you, 
and it can change the world. Not erotic love, romantic love, or even brotherly love as those uh, loves are appropriate in their time and place, but it's a love that human nature totally lacks. And that's why it has to come from outside of us. It's the self-sacrificing love of God. And it will produce love and kindness that you will spread around with kind words, pleasant looks, little attentions for others, small acts of love. Let it flow to others and it will increase the blessings and happiness of your life. Profound phrase, genuine love is a precious attribute of where? Heavenly origin, which increases in fragrance in proportion as it is dispensed to others. So not only can you and I get that love today that will open the door to the great life, but we can get more of it tomorrow. How do we get more of it tomorrow? By dispensing it. We become a channel of dispensing that self-sacrificing love to others. The little attentions, the small acts of love and self-sacrifice that flow out from the life as quietly as the fragrance from a flower, these constitute no small share of the blessings and happiness of life. So let's look at some examples, two contrasting examples in self-control. These two met, Paul and Nero. The countenance of the monarch bearing the shameful record of the passions that raged within. That was Nero. The countenance of the prisoner telling the story of a heart at peace with God and man. The results of opposite systems of education stood that day contrasted. A life of unbounded self-indulgence. Who was that? That was Nero. And a life of entire self-sacrifice. Who was that? That was Paul. Here were the representatives of two theories of life. All absorbing selfishness, which counts nothing too valuable to be sacrificed for momentary gratification. And self-denying endurance, ready to give up even what? Life itself, if what? Need be for what? The good of others. We're told this, if the soul is to be purified and ennobled and made fit for the heavenly courts, there are two lessons to be learned in everybody. These two lessons will be there in everyone that makes it eternally. What are those two lessons? Self-sacrifice and self control. So for physical, mental, and emotional, and spiritual health to be comprehensive and lifelong, it demands the gospel to be complete. And that's what was missing from that conference in 1991. They told us all the things we needed to do to eliminate coronary artery disease, but they didn't tell us how to have comprehensive self-control. And you can go to different programs, etc., and you can learn a lot of good information in regards to how implementing that will give you a lot better health. But if that information is not shared with the gospel, you're actually introducing your subjects to a high form of legalism. 
I've run into people who in the church say, no, we should just give the health information. We should just give the health information. It seems to be you know, discrediting or whatever if we go into the spiritual information and they're here for the health information. But if you don't give the health information with the spiritual, how are they going to be able to keep all of these health rules? And we also need to be wary of the other way around too. If we share the gospel with people without convicting them of their need, it's going to be a very superficial, cheap gospel. And so this is why Christ was so intentional when he was here of doing the threefold ministry. What was the threefold ministry? It was education, teaching, which is what you want to do in your church programming, education, but it was also the health message and healing, and it was preaching of the gospel. And this is what the world is lacking. This is what the world is wanting. I think for too long, we have been leaving out the health message or maybe putting it in maybe right before an evangelistic series to maybe increase some interest. But it's not been a central core aspect of who we are. Ellen White even had plans of having treatment rooms and churches and health clinic types of rooms and hydrotherapy rooms and cooking schools and those sorts of things while we're giving the information and we would be able to have so many more people interested. And then they would be interested in the practical gospel that can help them to be able to become far better people and begin to experience the very great life that God has in store for each one of us. However, I've noticed working in hospitals over the years that many criticize what they think is the lowest part of humanity. When they don't exercise, when a person doesn't exercise self-control, even when it could obviously help them. And where I would see this a lot in my field of gastroenterology, working in hospitals for years, I'd be consulted for cirrhosis of the liver, and they would have ammonia levels way up, they'd be out of their gourd and hepatic encephalopathy, and I would be ordering an NG tube down to put lactulose or neomycin or faxin in an NG tube to get rid of these toxins, and the nurses would get upset at me. They would say, Dr. Nedley, this person's just going to, when we get him better, he's going to go out and he's going to drink again and drink away the last cells in his liver. We're fighting him to put this NG tube down. We're fighting him over this way, and he doesn't even care enough for himself. And they would say some of the most despicable things about these alcoholics that had no self-control. But I saw those alcoholics quite differently. I realize that the vast majority of them had never been introduced to the secret of comprehensive self-control. They did not want to die. 
They didn't want to die prematurely. They didn't want to be in that hospital, seeing everyone act and see them act like a fool. And often, when I would, once they did get better and their frontal lobe was able to come back, just sharing that simple parable, so many of them would be touched. And many of them went out and never drank another drink again. I'm more concerned about others that seem to have it all together, but they have one vice. They'll have a lot of great things said about them in their funeral because they had it pretty well together and they'll be thought of as a good person, but the difference between good and great is exponential. That one vice can kill you and it can hurt others. And it gets in the way of true self-sacrificing love. We're told the strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. It is the life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. Paul's secret, and he found the secret, he summarized in three words. What were those three words? This is a choice that you can make now, but it's a choice you also need to repeat every day. I'm putting my all on the altar of sacrifice. I'm putting my all into the pearl of great price. Speaking of that pearl in that same chapter, Ellen White says, we cannot earn salvation, but we are to seek for it with as much interest and perseverance as though we would abandon what? Everything in the world for it. There are some who seem to always to be always seeking for the heavenly pearl, but they do not make an entire surrender of their wrong habits. They do not die to self that Christ may live in them. Therefore, they do not find the precious pearl. They have not overcome unholy ambition in their love for worldly attraction. They do not take up the cross and follow Christ in the path of self-denial and sacrifice. Almost Christians, yet not fully Christians, they seem near the kingdom of heaven, but they cannot enter there. Almost but not wholly saved means to be not almost, but wholly lost. One of the reasons God has given the health message to our church even is a barometer for our own selves in regards to how are we doing with the things that are healthy? Are we still partaking in things that are unhealthy because we don't want to give up the vice? Are we still doing things when we look at the principles of the commandments of God? The sixth commandment is about life. Are we doing things that could shorten our life? 
just because it feels good momentarily? If you're in that situation, you don't have to be in that situation. You can have comprehensive self-control. And it will bring a far better life than those transient little dopamine surges from violating our conscience. I have seen the threefold ministry produce exponential results for salvation. At Weimar University, every depression and anxiety recovery program, we have baptisms. Some more so than others, but about half of everyone that comes through that program will eventually be baptized within a few months. Some of them right during the program. And they have recognized their need to put all on the altar of sacrifice. That parable of the pearl actually has a twofold meaning. Christ put his all on the altar of sacrifice for us. Because he recognized that if we fully trust in him, we are a pearl of great price to him. He knows what we're capable of with our minds that he's created and with the neuroplasticity he's put in there that if we trust in him, we were worth it to him. And if he put his all on the altar for us, we can put our all on the altar for him. We can trust him and he will open up to us a life that is far more abundant. Even the secular psychologists recognize it as this is the avenue for the great life, comprehensive self-control. And he wants to give you that love that, give you, that gives you that power today. I'm looking forward to the great multitude coming in. But that great multitude will only come in as we follow the threefold ministry Notice what Ellen White sees in the future. This is why we know Christ is coming soon, but he's not coming tomorrow, because this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. And it's one of the reasons why we have Weimar University. We are determined to train an army of youth to fulfill this commission. But here's what she predicts. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. Humanity is looking for the good life. They don't know how to get there, but they can find out from you, and when they find out from you, they're going to be asking you how they can put all on the altar, how they can go into the watery grave, and be resurrected in newness of life. And we will see God's message go viral. So today you know how to get to the road that gets to the pearl of great price. Don't pursue any more substitutes to the good life that doesn't get you there. Choose comprehensive self-control. Even the secular psychologists tell us there's no downside. Put your all on the altar of sacrifice and give yourself to God and open your heart to his love. 
the last words that Paul wrote to Timothy. By the way, I've been reading that book, Acts of the Apostles. I saw something that I didn't see before. It's right before the final chapter where it describes Paul's execution. That's not described in the scriptures, but you'll see some significant details that are pretty amazing about that last day that Paul spent. But the chapter right before that, which talks about his last words, she says this, once he found the secret, which he did, and he wrote about it in Romans 7 and 8, of his own lack of self-control, because Romans 7 was talking about himself, not once did he fail our Lord. Not once through all of the abuse, through the shipwrecks, through all of the stonings, through all of the um, aspects in regards to uh, brothers betraying him, all of those things that he went through, he never once lost his sight on Jesus and never once failed. He had complete, comprehensive self-control and continued to show with loving acts to everyone that was around him. That's possible in you and me. Yes, we can learn if we make future mistakes and be more resolute in getting rid of the selfishness of our hearts and having God cleanse our hearts. But Paul, that was such a success in comprehensive self-control, says this as he's passing the baton to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of what? Power and of love. The type of love he's talking about is a self-sacrificing love. And what else? Self-control. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I know that there are many in this room that have been struggling with self-control. They may not have seen it as being very important. They may have thought that they were living a better life having lack of self-control. But perhaps they understand the seriousness of lack of self-control more completely, and they also understand the secret and the key to self-control more comprehensively. And if there's anyone here that wants to say, I want to choose self-control in my life, comprehensive self-control, and I want to give myself without reserve, body, mind, and soul, to God, and allow him to pour his love upon me. Raise your hands to God and say, God, I am choosing to put my all on the altar. I'm choosing to buy the pearl of great price. And I thank you that you will fill me with your love and open the door to the abundant life you have planned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.